0: Hello and welcome to the Matthew Rocky Show for this week of March 21st. It's a great podcast to have you along for, with just like last week, a lot of news to cover. Also, we've got some fun stories to talk about at the end of the podcast this week. Uh, We're going to get started with a brief update on the war in Ukraine. The U.S. government on Wednesday officially accused Russia's military of committing war crimes in Ukraine. Quote, today I can announce that based on information currently available, the U.S. government assesses the members of Russia's forces have committed war crimes in Ukraine, Unquote. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said in a statement, he continued, our assessment is based on a careful review of available information from public and intelligence sources. Blinken didn't provide specific evidence for the claim. Russia hasn't issued a public response, although Moscow previously denied claims that its forces committed war crimes. Blinken said, quote, As with any alleged crime, a court of law within jurisdiction over the crime is ultimately responsible for determining criminal guilt in specific cases. The U.S. government will continue to track reports of war crimes and will share information we gather with allies, partners, and international institutions and organizations as appropriate. We are committed to pursuing accountability using every tool available, including criminal prosecutions." The consequences of such an assessment by the U.S. government aren't yet clear. And due to not only the war in Ukraine, but also inflation in the United States, uh, we are seeing prices on everything go higher, especially within the food chain. Inflation has hit every link of the food chain, from diesel that fuels tractors in the field, to trucks that deliver food from the farm to the food processor, to warehouses, and then to the retail store. Another cost impacting your grocery bill is a major jump in the price of fertilizer. Farmers are paying roughly three times what they paid in 2020. The Iowa Corn Growers Association president, Lance Littlebridge, told the Epoch Times, I think folks tend to forget. I hear the mainstream media talking a lot about it. The cost of farming went up, and you're going to see that in the grocery store. Well, that points the finger at the farmer, and that's very frustrating because the farmer, we don't set the prices for our corn, our beans, or cattle, or hogs, or chickens. We don't set the price of fertilizer. We buy at retail. We sell at wholesale. It's been that way. Farmers are some of the most frugal people. They're extremely smart, and we will manage to work through this. But sometimes we don't. Sometimes people go broke, and it's not a good thing. But what the consumer has to remember is that farmers are not setting the price. So when the box of Wheaties or cornflakes goes up in the supermarket, it's not because of the farmer, unquote. In July 2020, Urea fertilizer was $200 per ton. By February of 2022, it was more than $600 a ton, according to data collected by the Fertilizer Institute. It is common knowledge among agriculturalists that soil health depends on three vital macronutrients found in fertilizers, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. These macronutrients leave the soil as they feed growing plants. Farmers must replenish the soil to keep it fertile. Several factors have caused the cost of fertilizer to increase significantly, including tariffs, global unrest, and high corn prices. This past week, Supreme Court Judge nominee Kintaji Brown Jackson, a choice of President Joe Biden's to replace retiring Justice Stephen Breyer, fielded over a dozen hours of questions during three days of her confirmation hearing before the Senate Judiciary Committee. Uh, There is a couple of key points that came out regarding the hearings, including Jackson's vagueness to responding to a question on her judicial philosophy. Senator Dianne Feinstein of California said, quote, five or six years from now, how will we see you? Unquote. Jackson replied, I want to be the kind of judge like the one I've been for the past decade. Unquote. Many liberal Supreme Court justices express belief in the idea of a living Constitution, while conservative justices tend towards originalism, which say they interpret the Constitution as it was written by the founders. Jackson didn't commit herself to either, instead citing a, quote, methodology, unquote, that she would use on a case-by-case basis in her decisions. Jackson was also questioned of how she would define a woman, to which she responded, quote, I can't. I'm not a biologist, unquote. Another pressing point of the hearings this past week in the Senate was Jackson's track record on giving lighter sentence guidelines to those who were convicted of possession of child pornography. The issue, which was raised on Twitter on March 16th by Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri, was a major line of questioning. Jackson gave the recommended sentence, quote, because she had no choice, unquote. Senator Ted Cruz of Texas pulled out a number of cases where she was not subject to a mandatory minimum, though, and showed that Jackson gave sentences well below state recommendations. In one case, United States v. Chazen, prosecutors asked for a 78- to 97-month prison sentence, but Jackson ultimately gave the defendant a 28-month sentence. On average, Crew says Jackson gave 47.2% less time behind bars than prosecutors asked for. Continuing with the Supreme Court, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas on March 23rd missed his third consecutive day of oral arguments after being hospitalized earlier in the month as the court refuses to provide an update on his condition. Thomas, age 73, quote, is unable to be present today, unquote. Chief Justice John Roberts told the court, before continuing to repeat a line word-for-word about the justice participating in the decisions on all the cases the court has been hearing. Thomas began missing oral arguments on Monday, a day after a court spokeswoman revealed he has been hospitalized with an infection on Friday. A spokeswoman also said that the infection is not related to COVID-19, but declined to share any more details on the justice's condition. The U.S. Supreme Court has rejected Wisconsin state legislative maps drafted by the state's Democratic governor and improved by the Wisconsin Supreme Court. At the same time, the U.S. Supreme Court also declined to block a new congressional map for the state that was chosen by the Wisconsin court. Republicans currently hold five of the state's eight congressional seats, while Republicans hold three. Republicans control both chambers of the state legislature in the Badger State. Population shifts discovered after the 2020 census forced the state to go through redistricting, a process that was hotly contested by both political parties. Republicans approved maps in 2011 when they controlled the legislator and the governorship. This time, however, Governor Tony Evers, a Democrat and the Republican-dominated legislator, could agree on new maps. The Wisconsin Supreme Court was then asked to draw the maps to be used in the next elections. The court invited interested parties, including the legislator and the governor, to propose new maps consistent with the state constitution. Republicans asked the high court to throw out a state legislative electoral map drawn by Evers, which they say is racially skewed in favor of one crafted by the Republican-controlled state legislator. Republicans told Evers shifted too many voters to form an additional black-majority district, while Democrats said the shifting have been done in order to comply with the Voting Rights Act. Currently, six state assembly districts have a black majority, but the map provided by Evers would have raised that number to seven. Republicans said an emergency application filed with the U.S. Supreme Court on March 7th that Evers' maps, quote, mark a radical redraw from Wisconsin's past redistricting plans, unquote, and that they may make Wisconsin, quote, home to the 21st century racial gerrymandering, unquote. The U.S. Supreme Court sided with the Republicans in Wisconsin in an unsigned order. The case was disposed of without hearing any oral arguments. The widespread action against stories on emails and other materials from a laptop believed to be owned by President Joe Biden's son Hunter Biden impacted the 2020 election, former Attorney General William Barr said on March 17th. After the New York Post reported on the materials, Twitter blocked the circulation of the story and other news outlets cast doubt on its validity or refused to report on the developments, outlining claims including that the release was part of a Russian disinformation effort or did not matter. That definitely made an impact on the election, the suppressing that news, Barr said, who served under Trump and also the George H.W. Bush administrations. He says, quote, and it's not a question of whether it was criminal or not, right. Just the facts alone were shameful. And most Americans would immediately see what was going on and how repulsive it was. And it would have had an effect. The issue of criminality is a different issue. A survey done in the wake of the election found 17% of Biden voters would not have voted for him if they were aware of the Hunter Biden story or others like it that were downplayed or ignored by legacy media outlets and big tech. Twitter executives later said they made a mistake in labeling the Post story as being based on hacked materials and shouldn't have halted its circulation. Some news outlets were drastically changing their reporting on the materials, including the New York Times. One of the outlets to push the Russian disinformation angle reported this week that they had authenticated the materials. The New York Post said it obtained a copy of the laptop's hard drive from former President Donald Trump's lawyer Rudy Giuliani and provided materials showing the FBI seized the computer, Hunter Biden has avoided answering questions about the laptop and White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki, which claimed in 2020 that Russians appeared to be involved, declined on Thursday to address the new reports. A post-Roe World is being assembled by state legislators across the country. Anticipation of the United States Supreme Court In June or July, overturning its 1973 Roe v. Wade ruling that established the constitutional right to abortion. All sides of the abortion debate expect the court to uphold a Mississippi law that bans abortion after 15 weeks of pregnancy when it rules on Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization and to return regulation of abortion To the states. Lawmakers in state capitals nationwide have been revising state abortion laws and regulations over the past two years to prepare for Roe, which allowed abortions up to 22 to 24 weeks, being struck down. According to the Guttmacher Institute, a research and policy nonprofit that supports abortion rights, at least 531 anti-abortion restrictions were introduced in 40 states during 2022 after lawmakers in 2021 adopted more than 100 laws restricting Abortion more than any other year in the past five decades. At least 26 states are likely to either ban abortion outright or severely limit access to the procedure, the Guttmacher Institute maintains, if the Supreme Court returns the issue. To the states. Lawmakers in Ohio, Florida, West Virginia, and Idaho are among those who have adopted or are considering doing so in 2022 sessions. 15 week bans similar to Mississippi's, while Idaho is among Republican controlled legislators that have adopted Texas bills uh, in 2021 that allow anyone to file a lawsuit against anyone who knowingly aids or abets an abortion after the sixth week of pregnancy. Meanwhile, progressive-controlled states such as New Jersey and Vermont have gone the opposite direction in passing measures that protect access to abortion. Voters in four states have approved ballot measures that declare there is no right to abortion in their state constitutions. Tennessee was the first to do so in 2014, with Alabama and West Virginia voters doing so in 2018. Louisianans adopted their no-right-to-abortion-in-state-constitution ballot measure in 2020. At least two similar state constitutional amendments will go before voters this year in Kansas and Kentucky, with a prospective third measure being debated now by Oklahoma lawmakers. Voters in Iowa will vote on the measure in 2024. And speaking of Idaho, as mentioned in that previous article, it was just this week that they became the first state to enact a law modeled after a Texas statute banning abortions after about six weeks of pregnancy and allowing it to be enforced through lawsuits to avoid constitutional court challenges. Republican Governor Brad Little signed the law into measure that allows people who would have been family members to sue a doctor who performed an abortion after cardiac activity is detected in an embryo. Still, he said he had concerns about whether the law is constitutional. The law in the conservative state is scheduled to take effect 30 days after being signed. Advanced technology can detect the first flutter of electric activity within cells in an embryo As early as six weeks. The law allows the father, grandparents, siblings, aunts, and uncles of a preborn baby to sue an abortion provider for a minimum of $20,000 in damages within four years after an abortion. Rapists cannot file a lawsuit under the law, however, their family could. Turning back now to the international scene, New Zealand has announced the end of QR codes, mask mandates and COVID-19 vaccine passports and other mandates in most industries. As of April 4th, vaccination passport rules will be removed and vaccination mandates will be lifted in all industries except health and disability, aged care, corrections and border forces. Changes that take effect on March 26th include increasing indoor capacity limits to 200 from 100 while outdoor limits will be completely removed. Mask mandates also will be removed for all outdoor events but remain for workers at indoor events with an orange risk rating. QR code scanning requirements will also be removed and businesses will have the choice to require customers to show vaccine passports before entry once restrictions have been Removed. Nearly 2,500 healthcare workers in British Columbia were put out of work for their decision to not get COVID-19 shots, according to BC Health's ministry. 2,496 nurses, aides, and other hospital support staff were fired. The Vancouver Sun reported on March 22nd. In October of 2021, Health Minister Adrian Dix announced that unless they had a medical exemption, anyone working for or contracted to work in the province's health authorities had to receive their first vaccination by November 15th, 2021, and their second dose four to five weeks later if they wanted to keep their job. The latest numbers do not include physicians and regulated health professionals who work in private settings such as a chiropractic, dentist, or psychologist's office. These private clinic employees, however, were mandated by the province to take their first shot by March 24th and a second dose within 35 days. On March 7th, Provincial Health Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry issued a new order requiring regulatory health colleges to provide personal information concerning their registrants to the Ministry of Health by March 31st in order for the ministry to verify registrants' vaccination status. Based on the numbers released by the province, almost half of the dismissed workers were employed by the Interior and Northern Health Authorities. Also in Canada, the minority Liberal government will be able to remain in power until 2025 thanks to an agreement reached with the New Democratic Party of Canada. Announcing the agreement on March 22nd, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said the deal will help quote, not have Parliament be obstructive, unquote. The kind of agreement generally involves an opposition party agreeing to support the government on confidence motions and budget or appropriation votes, For a concerned period of time, the BCNDP struck a similar deal with the Greens in that province back in 2017. Trudeau said his government made commitments to increase spending on health care, including establishing a national pharmacare and dental plan in order to secure the NDP's support. The bill H.R. 7193 that was introduced on March 22nd would remove China's permanent normal trade relations status and relink Beijing's trade status with the human rights situation in China, according to a statement from the Office of Representative Chris Smith of New Jersey. Uh, he has introduced the election that would strip Beijing of its trade privileges with the United States, a measurement to punish the communist regime for its heinous human rights atrocities. It would require annual affirmation from the U.S. president that Beijing is making marked progress in the improvement of its human rights record to achieve normal trade status. In pushing this measure, Smith, a longtime critic of China's abuses, hopes to send a strong message that the Chinese Communist Party cannot continue its myriad of human rights violations, including its well-documented campaign of repression against minorities in Western China. Joining Smith in sponsoring the legislation include Representative Tom Tiffany, a Republican from Wisconsin, and Representative Tom Suozzi, a Democrat from New York. Well, read the bill. It's a petition calling on Congress to wait 72 hours before adopting spending bills. It took five months for the $1.5 trillion federal appropriations bill to surface after the United States fiscal year began on October 1st, 2021, but only mere hours for the U.S. House and less than a day for the U.S. Senate to adopt it on March 9th and 10th. The massive package is a continuing resolution, not a budget, as Congress hasn't adopted a budget since 2016. It includes a $46 billion increase, or 6.7% boost for non-defense programs, a $42 billion, 5.6% increase in defense allocations, and $13.6 billion in supplemental appropriations to Ukraine. But no one could have read the entire 2,741-page bill within the 24-hour span that it was introduced and adopted, at least not all of it, at least not those who voted on it, says Adam Andrzewski, the CEO and president of the Chicago-based OpenTheBooks.com, a nonprofit group that focuses on transparency in government spending. to the Matthew Rocky Show for the second part of this first part of the week of March 21st. As you may have realized, this week's episode broken into two parts just with the amount of news there was to cover. And I'll bring you today in history here in this first part as well, some other fun details. And then in the second part, I'll have a few stories for you that are worth noting. Uh, first of all, you think gas prices are expensive? Well, have you seen chimneys? I mean, they're through the roof. And here's something that I didn't get to cover in the news that I think is really important um, and really interesting. Did you hear that FedEx and UPS are merging? That's right, they're going to be called FedUps. Um, so I recently opened a restaurant, and I'm going to call it Peace and Quiet. Kids' meals starting at 150 bucks. <laughs> All right, let's take a look at Today in History. Uh, Going back to March 21st, it was in 1685 that composer Johann Sebastian Bach was born in Germany. In 1935, Persia officially changed its name to Iran. And in 1945, during World War II, Allied bombers began four days of raids over Germany uh, back March 21st, 1945. Fast forward 20 years, civil rights demonstrators, led by the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., began their third successful march from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama. Once again, 1965, the date on that. Let's jump to the next day, March 22nd. In 1765, the British Parliament passed the Stamp Act to raise money from the American colonies, which fiercely resisted the tax. You may remember that I mentioned last week uh, the anniversary of when it was repealed, so it wasn't even in effect for a full year. Uh, here's something that's uh, interesting. 1882, President Chester Arthur signed a measure outlawing polygamy in the United States. It was in 1894 that hockey's first Stanley Cup championship game was played. Home team Montreal defeated Ottawa 3-1. March 22nd, 1894. Wow. And the Grand Coulee Hydroelectric Dam in Washington State officially went into operation March 22nd, 1941. For the 23rd of March, a note, uh, actually a couple of notes to mention there. In 1775, Patrick Henry delivered an address to the Virginia Provincial Convention in which he is to have said, quote, give me liberty or give me death, unquote, something that uh, Patrick Henry is quite remembered for. 1806, explorers Meriwether Lewis and William Clark began uh, their journey back to the east, having reached the Pacific Coast. Moving on to Thursday, the 24th of March, it was in 1934 that President Franklin D. Roosevelt signed a bill granting future independence to the Philippines, and it was in 1947 on a low note the coal dust explosion inside the Centralia Coal Company mine number five in Washington County, Illinois, claimed the lives of 111 miners, 31 individuals survived. That was 1947. Let's jump uh, just a few more years to 1954 when RCA announced it had begun producing color television sets at its plant in Bloomington, Indiana, 1954. Well, let's move on to a couple of stories. uh, But before we do, uh, here's a quick thing. Recently, I was in a safety meeting at work and they asked me What steps I would take in a fire? Apparently, really big and fast ones was the wrong answer. Uh, I also bought my mom a new fridge for a birthday present. I can't wait to see her face light up when she opens it. All right. um, These are getting bad. Moving right along to those stories... Well, you wouldn't have had to pay much to buy the comic book in 1939, but buying a 1939 comic book today will cost plenty. An official with the Comic Connect says someone has paid $2.4 million for a copy of the first-ever Marvel comic book. The auction house says the Marvel Number 1 comic in question is known as a first, quote, pay copy, unquote, It's especially prized because it contains the publisher's handwritten notes about who got paid what. The COO of Comic Connect says the issue that was sold is perhaps one of the top three comic books in the world of collecting. Well, in Alaska, in many races, you can win a prize for finishing first, second, or third. But how about last? Well, that is exactly what happens if you come in last in the grueling Iditarod Trail Sled Dog Race across Alaska. The winner crossed the finish line Tuesday, but it wasn't until late Saturday night that the final musher reached the end of the course. For sticking with it until the bitterly cold end, the musher won the traditional Red Lantern Award a $1,000 cash. As the last musher to finish, he also got to extinguish the widow's lamp on the arch that towers over the finish line. The snuffing of the lamp is a tradition, marking that there are no other mushers left on the trail. Well, let's go down to Alabama. The sheriff's office in Alabama's Chilton County says this theft sets the mark in the heavyweight category. Authorities say a man called a wrecker service to pull a 70-ton crane from the woods. The towing service says the man seeking the tow said the crane was given to him and he wanted to move it so he could sell it for scrap. The wrecker recalled moving the same crane years ago and asked the customer who denied giving it away. So the tow operator called the police. The man who had wanted the crane moved had fled the scene before authorities arrived, but not before running the crane into a ditch. The suspect was arrested on a probation violation and first-degree theft charges. (laughs) you got to be some kind of criminal to think that you're going to get away with stealing a 70-ton crane. I mean, what exactly do you plan on doing with that? Uh, it's actually extremely humorous if you think about it. So, Well, a couple of final things for you. My sister has begged me to stop making police-related puns, so I decided to give it a rest. Uh, here's another thing I learned this week. In Britain, they call it a lift, but Americans call it an elevator. I guess we were just raised differently. But speaking of things being different and frustrating sometimes... Uh, 97% of people are considered to be unsmart. But thankfully, I'm in the other 5%. So I learned that this week and very thankful for that. But I was disappointed because I bought coconut shampoo today. And when I got home, I realized I don't even own a coconut. All right, we'll see you in the next part of this week of March 21st here on the Matthew Rocky Show.